the ultimate goal is just to obviously ride 100 foot waves and do backflips down them every single time. <laughs> Welcome to the Drop Stabs Weekly Podcast. My name is Danny Johnson, and this week, the podcast is a little late. We're committed to releasing this podcast every Friday in Australia, which is Thursday evenings in the US. You're going to have to do the maths if you're located elsewhere in the world. But this week, we're a little late. We're late this week for a reason. And the reason is this episode, we have an interview with the winning shaper of Stab in the Dark. We wanted to give everyone a couple of days to watch the series before we announce the winner anywhere online. So if you haven't seen the final episode yet, now's your time to tune out because I will be spoiling this year's winner very shortly. I'll also be chatting to Kai Lenny this episode for no other reason than I, I just wanted to talk to him. He confuses me and he also fascinates me. In surf news this week, the major headlines are all centered around the WSL's attempts to make the events official for the Australian leg of the tour. Last week, we covered the Lennox locals successfully squashing the event there And you can listen to last week's episode to get the full rundown on that with Jed Smith, who attended the meeting where the locals had their say and were able to make a case compelling enough to stop the WSL from running an event there. But uh, every time a councillor spoke against having the contest there, like a deafening roar filled the chamber. And it was was quite rattling for the the councillors. Since then, there's been an event locked in 600 kilometres south of Lennox Head, two hours drive north in Sydney in Merriweather Beach in Newcastle. If you don't know Newcastle, it's a classic surf town. It's used to hosting QS events, so there was no complaints from the locals there. The locals there include legends like Mark Richards, Matt Hoy, Luke Egan, and then the younger generation, guys like Craig Anderson, Ryan Callanan, and World Tour rookie this year, Morgan Sibilic. Um, Actually, let's try and call... Ryan Callan right now. See if he will pick up. Hey, this is Ryan. Leave a message. Well, that did not work, but let's just assume he's happy because he's one of the most positive people I've ever met. And I love him, even if he refuses to take my calls. So as it stands at the time of recording, the Newcastle event is confirmed. There's also an event confirmed in Margaret River, Western Australia. And there's two other potential events for the Australian leg that the WSL are working on at the moment. Uh, The first is Narrabeen in Sydney. And the other one is at a location that uh, can't be named as yet, but that'll make four events in total if they're able to pull them all off and then... Who knows after that, but massive congratulations to the WSL for making it happen. Seems like they're going to extreme lengths to get the tour uh, happening this year. And I guess because of that, I promise to watch every single heat day run. Unless the surf's a little bit shitty or it's with some lower seed surfers that I don't really care about as much. But other than that, I am right there. In the world of surf movies, in my like very biased opinion, there's nothing that compares to or is even worthy of mentioning other than Stab in the Dark's final episode that's released 
uh, a couple of days ago. Actually, that's not true. Drag, drag's movie, Drag Rip Three or R.I.P. Three: The Death of Bodyboarding is a is actually a must watch. That's like, I mean, I'm not going to try and describe what that is, but it's uh, almost hour long, just internet sex surf party that you will not be disappointed. I mean, not sex, but you know what I mean. And then next week, there's actually a movie coming out on Andrew Doheny that Dane Reynolds has made by the name of Short Circuit. And Droid or Andrew Doheny joined the former team a while back. And I'm not going to say anything about the, the movie now, but it is, it is a masterpiece. So please watch that when it is dropped. And we actually have a chat with Dane that we're going to play in the podcast next week. I already recorded that with Dane, but he Dane's like got his own take on promotion or, or at least a, a different approach. So he didn't want to put anything out before the movie comes out. So we're going to run that conversation next week. Now for the conversation with the winner of Stab in the Dark 2020 starring Taj Burrow, Marcio Zuvi, who shapes another company, Sharp Eyes. So Marcio's been shaping since the late 80s and he actually started out by ripping the glass off longboards and reshaping that foam. He's since then grown Sharp Eyes into a global brand that's distributed worldwide and, and it's based out, he's currently based out of California. And when I called Marcio, he'd been given the news a couple of days ago. He was just kind of sitting around, keeping it tight-lipped, waiting for the world to find out. So let's hear what he had to say about being named the champion of 2020, Stab in the Dark. Born in Rio de Janeiro, Shaper Marcio Zuvi moved to San Diego to study computer engineering before starting SharpEye, focusing his brand building ultra-modern high-performance equipment. Over the last 25 years, Marcio and SharpEye have grown in profile and production, known for their consistency and quality building boards in four continents. With Felipe Toledo and Kano Igarashi doing some of the most undeniably spicy surfing on tour these days, Marcio cemented himself as one of the most cutting-edge high-performance shapers on the planet. Sharpie. Marcio. Yeah. It's Danny from Stab. Hey, what's happening? Not much. How you doing? Good, good, man. Congratulations. You're the winner of Stab in the Dark 2020. Yeah, thanks. Uh, stoked on that, for sure. How does it feel? It was pretty good. I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, you know, expecting it because I kind of liked the way he rode the other ones in the final, but, you know, I still have to see the final. But, but when you guys call me up i mean when came over and, and handed me the thing i was like wow no no shit pretty stoked yeah you know <laughs> it was good are you i expected a little bit more emotion out of you are you someone who um who keeps it all under your hat a little bit <laughs> dude i've seen a lot you know so i'm kind of a more more like uh yeah a little a little drier you know but it's not like I'm not stoked, you know. I'm I'm pretty stoked. In fact, I liked it a lot the format you guys did this time, you know. And being part of that is it was great, you know. Really happy with it. The winner is this one, 72. Sharp eye, get out of it. What? That is epic. Yes. Congratulations. That's my pick of the bunch. <laughs> 
And what does it mean as a shaper to win Stab in the Dark? Oh, no doubt, you know, like considering who is running, you know, the top guys in the world right now, it's it's a pretty pretty big accomplishment, you know, for sure. And when he went to the final, and then when, when you guys told me that he decided to choose mine, I was like, fuck, I can't believe it, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, like, you know, even though, I, you know, I, I like the way my designs work really good, but I always admire other other people's designs also, you know, and and I saw him surfing really, really well with the Pukas and the, and the CI. So that's why I was like, mm, I don't know, I haven't seen the final yet, but if the final is in really good surf, I think those boards could be the winners, you know, but if the surf is a little bit smaller, maybe my board would be the pick. Who did you think you were shaping for when you were given the surface dimensions? At first, was uh, I thought it was Kelly because uh, you guys mentioned uh, a guy that's 5'9", that writes 5'7", and is on the tour. So that's the only guy that I know of, you know, so certain it was. But, I, I mean, I really didn't consider guys that were, like, already retired. Mm. So... But actually, it kind of played out in my favor, I think, because Tash surfing, man, it reminds me of Philippe right now, really. I mean, he, the surfing on, on the stab of all all videos, it's fucking, I don't know what he's doing retire. He should be back, you know? <laughs> it, I know. It, it, it's, it's, top 10, it's top 10 on my on my book. I mean, seriously, if he goes back, I mean, the, 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 what he's doing right now is as good as everybody else on the top 10 are doing. For sure. He's so modest and self-deprecating, but it's, it's incredible. And everyone, I think everyone has that same reaction as you. What are you looking for when you're watching Taj on your boards and, and it's moving through the water? Well, number one, he, he, you know, like he's, he's that same uh, Philippe's approach, meaning like he doesn't waste any time. He doesn't, he just goes, you know, like right off, the, off one turn, connecting to another solid bottom turn and going for another killer off the top and if he has speed maybe even something up in the air so it's it's really fast and lively and that's what i aim for which is different than let's say a little heavier built guy that has a little more a little slower time to set the turn and, and obviously a massive carve but not as as electric as 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 dash and you know approach so that's when I saw the board for him, when I saw that he was the guy, I was like, oh, fuck, that would be good. You know, I hope he likes that one. Now, I really like this format, and, you know, like, because also there's another thing to consider, that you guys level the playing field on construction. So basically, Taj was really feeling the designs, you know, from one board to the, to another. He, he The flex pattern was the same, you know, so because, you know, like when you guys basically like on the previous tab in the dark, say, go ahead and do whatever you want. There's guys building PUs, epoxies, and within the PU, different stringers, different constructions as far as, you know, fiberglass and all that. So all this, for me, matters. On that level of surfing, it's, it's huge. Like here, I measure flex, I measure weight. There's a lot of things that plays a part. But you guys basically level that side of things and just, he was just feeling the shape. And that was that was really, really accurate, I think, of a judgment, you know. Yeah, and I guess it really does matter who the surfer is. Like I was speaking to Darren Hanley this morning and he won the original Stab in the Dark, which is in 2015 with Julian Wilson. 
And he says whenever he gets given the surface dimensions, his boards didn't make it this year. They got stuck in transit or they got stuck in, L, uh, in their factory over in the States. But he said um, whenever he gets given the dimensions, he goes straight over to Mick Fanning's house and they'll talk through who they think the surfer is. And it's pretty hard to pick. I think he said Geordie Smith was a pretty easy one, but the rest are hard. And he actually thought it was Carissa Moore this year. But um, really? yeah, so he didn't. Yeah, he didn't pick. Um, he didn't pick Taj either. But do you? Ch- would you change the board depending on who the surfer is? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, you know, if if if, if it was Kelly, you know, I would still would do the same because that's what I was thinking to begin with. I mean, you guys also said that like the wave's supposed to be medium to small, and yeah. <laughs> the surf was going off. It was hollow and, 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 and you know completely different. But you know, those are the things that I was considering first at first. But it's hard, like like it's hard not knowing, you know. Like the information guys give is definitely it's like fuck you in the dark. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was meant to be in at one point. It was meant to be filmed on location in the Maldives, which has completely different, you know, uh, types of waves to Western Australia. And then COVID, COVID changed all of that. But talking about your model. Um, the board that won was your model, the Disco Inferno. And you've had that model for, I think, you've had that model in operation for maybe over 10 years now. Is that right? Yeah, no, that model's been around. But I always perfected, uh, you know, towards a couple riders, you know. But it's been a go-to for a lot of guys on the QS, you know. It's always been a, a good one to have on the quiver. And uh, when Philippe started to ride... You know, in smaller, smaller conditions, I, I kind of uh, tweaked a little bit. And Felipe looks like he's put on a bit of weight lately. Is he? Have you changed up his boards a lot? Yeah, we're we're on a on a on a situation right now because he doesn't want me to change. But in Hawaii, we're hanging out. It's like, man, you gotta change. No, 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 no. Trust me, I'm gonna lose weight. I'm gonna lose weight. It's not, it doesn't happen that way, you know. Yeah. So right now, I'm building like 20 boards for Australia. And I'm bumping up, you know, big time because you know how it is. In in your mind, you think you don't need that. I'm fine, but but no, I'm. I saw him burying the rails, and I was like, dude, you, you definitely got more weight right now. You you need more volume. And will yeah. you try and work with Taj in the future? Obviously, he loves he loves what you do. No, I I I, I never never thought about that because as far as I know, he he, he writes for for loss, I believe. You know. Or at least he was when he was on the tour. So I'm sure I think uh, Matt still still works with him, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I that I don't know, you know. But uh, but like I said, it really surprised me, man, why he's not on the tour. I mean, I know he's kind of burned out, being so many years and all that. But uh, shit, the surfing he's putting out, dude. You know, with the right coach, fuck, it's contest winner for sure. All right, and, and how did you celebrate the win? I want to know what you did. I want to feel some emotion out of you, Marcio. Tell me how you celebrated. <laughs> Dude, I, you know, like I'm waiting. You know, it's almost like because you guys said, like, don't do anything, I'm just kind of waiting to pop the, the champagne, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, we got a little celebration ready for tomorrow, you know, like with all the employees, all the crew here for sure. Before I let you go, I just wanted to know one more thing. I was interested to know where the name Sharp Eye comes from. Sharp I came from, shoot, I was, uh, when I was, I was in Australia, I think, or I was in France, and we were kind of trying to create a brand, and, and a lot of people, you know, were in the shape room looking at the details of the shape and all that, and 
fuck, and I was seeing things, and people couldn't really see what I was talking I was like, bro, you got to have a sharp eye. Listen to me. You got to look at that thing this way, you know, and and, uh, and that's when it's, it's stuck, you know. Right. Sharp so you, eyes, uh, you, know? You, you had more attention to detail than the other other people in the Bay that, that you were around? You just, well, sharp eye meaning like you have to look, you know, you know, with what's not obvious, you know. There's a couple things that, they're really hard to dissect and you really have to be attentive to the tail, you know, and yeah. that's what the, the sharp eye thinking, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, so. a lot of, a lot of shapers have a reputation for being crazy people. So, uh, maybe, <laughs> no, that, maybe that's I, part I'm of your madness. Fucking normal. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It could be, it, it could be no doubt about it. I mean, if you come here, the fact you see like, fuck, I got numbers, I got, Tons of files and things, and you know I'm kind of controller freak, controller freak, controller freak, controller freak. Thank you, Marcio. All four episodes of Stab in the Dark are available behind the paywall at stabmag.com, our premium editorial service. The link will be in the episode's description, so please click on through. And if you're not actually across how our new premium service works at Stab, our editorial paywall. Basically, it goes like this. It's like you give us money and we give you weekly premium editorial, deep dive journalism, objective product reviews, how-tos, and then all of Stab's film projects, including the back catalog that are now only available behind the paywall, which includes all the previous Stab in the Darks, of course. So that'll set you back $9.99 USD a month or $5.99 USD a month if you opt for an annual subscription. So please support independent media and sign on up. It's now time for my conversation with Kai Lenny. Kai's someone who I just couldn't take seriously when he first emerged on the surf scene. He, he was so polished and well-oiled as a self-marketer and, and even the way he's perfect personal brand is just perfectly suited to mainstream marketing marketing he just seemed too polished to be a real thing i didn't even see a human when i looked at kai i saw some sort of big wave robot just too perfect and he just has this excessive hygiene and well-spoken shtick it was it was almost surreal like if you sat down at a computer and opened up some fancy futuristic program and typed in hawaiian waterman humanoid and then press print on a 3D printer, Kai Lenny is exactly what would come out. And of course, of course, like in the years since, his like completely playful approach to life-threatening waves has been undeniable. So I've come to love him beyond my confusion. That's enough preamble. We all know who Kai Lenny is. So let's hear what he's got to say. Hello? Hey, is that Kai? Yeah, this is him. Danny? Uh, yeah, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good. What's going on in your world right now? Uh, just got back to Maui from the North Shore and uh, putting the pieces back together. <laughs> I'd love to kick off by just knowing uh, where you are right now and what you're wearing. Uh, right now, I am at my house. And I am wearing a collared black shirt, golf shorts, and a hat. 
and a tag hewer watch. And I just did a show with uh, Harry Bryant, um, who who said that he noticed on your Instagram that your garage looked immaculately clean and well manicured. Is that right? Yeah, showroom. Talk me through it. What, what's, what goes on in your garage? Is that like, I guess that's where you keep all, all your equipment and, and have everything completely dialed, but are you a bit of a clean freak? Uh, you know what? I just love having everything meticulously organized. Um, my floor is like deep ocean blue concrete stain just you know reminds me of being in the middle of the pacific but in all seriousness i keep it so immaculate and so clean because i need to be able to find all of my equipment and be able to describe it to somebody in case i need a board or a kite or a sail to be shipped to me somewhere across the world then it's very very easy for them to find it that was kind of the root of why i keep it so clean and also i always liked the concept of it being like a formula one garage or uh you know just a showroom like you could walk in there and it would be like wow i'd like this one and this one yeah it's kind of inspiring i feel like the life of a big wave surfer in particular the, the big wave surfer at the elite level that and the life that you're living to just be this like it's, it, it, there's no parallels in other sports. It's, it's checking forecasts. It's flying around the world and putting yourself in these death-defying positions and that seems to be your year. But what do people not realize about the life of the big wave surfer? What are the assumptions that are wrong? Um, you know, that's, that's a good question. I mean, the hardest part about being a big wave surfer is practicing. You know, you don't, can't just go out on any given Sunday and do it and play a game. You know, it's, it's uh, out of the blue. Um, for example, just in the last couple of, like, this last month, there was three weeks in a row where I flew back and forth from California to Mavericks and back to Jaws. And every time we were, I was traveling with Ian Walsh and my brother Ridge, every time we were traveling back, we thought, well, it was fun to go to Mavericks. I wonder when the next swell is. We'd land home, surf Jaws that next day. And then look at the forecast and Mavericks is going to be big and firing. So we're like, okay, we're back on a plane. And, you know, you definitely have to just be like, you know, tell anybody. Like I told all my sponsors that if there's a big swell, it's that engagement that we had been planning for a year and a half is probably going to get canceled. And, uh, you know, that's happened many times. Yeah, I'm sure it has. And I'm sure there's been a lot of sacrifices you've made in your personal life. Are there any weddings or, um, I mean, you don't have a child, but... Would you miss your potential or hypothetical child's birth for a swell? I don't think I would miss my child's birth um, if I were to have one, because I, the way I look at it is, it depends. There's certain. There's two types of big wave surfers. There's the type that go out there and rush for like two or three years, maybe five, and then they just disappear and they're over big wave surfing. Kind of my stance on it is, I want to be surfing for big waves for thirty years or more. So you miss one big day, there's always going to be another big day. And, you know, if you listen to the news, they're telling you that with climate change, storms are going to get more and more powerful, which is, you know, to be perfectly honest, the only people benefiting from that are going to be surfers and in particular big wave surfers. So I guess bring it on, bigger storms, the bigger the waves. <laughs> so we, we have it on record, Kyle Lenny is pro climate change. I mean... You know what? Better it's best to make the um, you know, gotta make the most out of a bad situation, I guess. I 
it was interesting to hear that you mentioned you have a really long-term approach and I find it fascinating because the way you entered surfing was, it was almost like you entered surfing bigger than surf culture, culture itself. People like Kelly Slater and Laird, they took decades to really eclipse surf culture and, and, and enter sort of mass culture. But you, you almost started out in that, in that same place. Was that an intention? You know, I think it was thanks to those individuals paving the road before me. And then, you know, I think by by way of doing so many different sports and, I don't know, being able to touch so many different people in different parts of the world, that kind of gave me an in. And then within the actual core form of surfing, I mean, I've been doing that as the first sport I ever did. But I feel like I've been approaching it the opposite way, which is kind of starting big waves and everyone can appreciate big waves, especially on a mainstream level. And, you know, and now I'm working my way back down to smaller waves and getting better in small waves surfing. So it's kind of funny. I think I've done everything in reverse. And I always joked that the way I like entering any sport is kind of through the back door, which is, um, you know, people don't see you at first and then all of a sudden you're on stage. <laughs> and Laird was obviously a mentor of yours and the comparisons between you two are really common. How does that sit with you? I mean, I think what Laird has done for Big Wave Surfing is, I mean, he was one of the individuals that redefined the sport. And as growing up, you know, before there was social media and then, you know, before comic book movies were a thing, those guys like Laird and the rest of the Strath crew were just my absolute heroes. And, you know, when you get to grow up knowing them um, and, you know, people made the comparisons, though, I think we ended up very different once I became an adult. He's far taller um, and I'm far shorter, but the benefit of that is my waves look bigger. <laughs> what about, uh, what other differences are there in terms of your personalities? Uh, yeah, well, I think, I think my personality is pretty different to Laird's. Um, I'm pretty easygoing uh, and not to say Laird isn't, but for sure, you know, for me, it's like, I can only speak upon myself and I just try to, you know, kind of live my life, uh, always learning, um, trying to be, you know, nice to everybody. You just never know who you're talking to. And even beyond gaining opportunities that way, uh, you know, the classic saying, treat people how you want to be treated. And I think it's just kind of been ingrained in my brain since I was a kid that nobody likes a big head. Uh, and so, you know, if, I think as soon as you start thinking of yourself really highly, you're probably limiting yourself um, in terms of growth and potential. You know, I always feel pretty, I'm probably my greatest critic. So, you know, I push myself to become better every single day and all facets of life. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. How do you balance the mindset necessary for big waves and the accolades that come with it? with the potential you know, fear of it going to your head or becoming like uh, some sort of um, somewhat of a narcissist? Like how do, you, how do you get your head around that type of um, – those dichotomies in your life? Well, I think with big wave surfing, you know, I think what we do is absolutely incredible and, you know, it should be appreciated for sure. But what always keeps me humble is you could go ride a hundred foot wave and then be walking through the airport six hours later and not one person could recognize you or know who you are or let alone care. You know, it's almost just like 
candy for them to watch on Instagram for 10 seconds and then they move on with their day. You know, I got my goals. Um, and you know, I, since I'm my own greatest critic, it's like, for me, it's about overcoming, you know, the small little steps that are before me. And eventually it leads me to the ultimate goal. And, uh, the ultimate goal is just to obviously ride hundred foot waves and do backflips down them every single time. (laughs) (laughs) The way you come across, um, even in this conversation, anytime you show up in media or even when you're surfing is it doesn't seem like you ever look uncomfortable and you don't ever make mistakes. Can you humanize yourself for me and tell me about a mistake you've made or, or, or your biggest mistake even? Oh, I mean, I feel like I'm constantly making mistakes. Um, and it's, it, but, it, but I'm, I'm quick to, to look in the mirror and register it. I mean, I'm only human. There's nothing really special about me. Have you had, how much media training have you had? I've never had any media training. Really? You speak this well and, and uh, that articulate just naturally? Yeah, this is, I've never had media training whatsoever. This is just how I talk. <laughs> That's impressive. I think part of the reason why I like, and I, I do articulate things a certain way is I'm fortunate to work with a lot of people that develop my equipment or, you know, I've worked with people that develop my windsurfing gear, my kiting gear, my foils. And in order to get sometimes my idea across, I have to be very, um, I would say, I guess I have to be articulate in how I present it and try to describe the feelings that I have on the wave. Cause you know how surfing is like trying to describe a color. You can't really describe what it is. Only a surfer knows the feeling that classic saying. And on that note, can you describe for me your best wave from start to finish from the last, uh, big day at Jaws? Well, so, I mean, talking about mistakes, for example, you know, that day on the Jan- January 16th was the biggest day since probably the last Eddie ran in 2016 and might've been even bigger um, than the, that Eddie Akau day at Jaws. It just hit it perfectly and it was giant. And my session off started off pretty rough because we were dealing with, you know, a lot of people that aren't normally out at Jaws and, you know, everyone lost the biggest wave. And then my jet ski got put on the rocks trying to help save me after, you know, getting my board off the rocks and, I just remember sitting on the rocks and kind of looking up to the sky and going, am I being punished for something or is this a test? And I've never felt a more, you know, true feeling in my gut in my entire life, which it was a test. I'm like, okay, the gods are testing me. I go back out. I hide. We put my jet ski up in the tree since we can't get it off the rocks. And then, you know, I'm out there with my brother and my brother, um, we just wait our turn and all of a sudden, just this big giant West monster comes out of the, uh, basically out of the channel and he tows me in and I'm just going, okay, well, this is the slab of all slabs at Jaws. And I remember just dropping into this wave and seeing my brother disappear over the lip and just seeing such a long wall. The best waves at Jaws though are the ones that look like pure closeouts. Like it almost feels like the entire world's about to fold over you and, you know, if you don't make it, you'll be sent into oblivion or the 13th dimension. And, but you got to have, like, there's a certain moment when I'm your bottom turning, you have to have complete faith and trust that everything's going to work out. And you almost kind of got, can't think about what's happening in front of you. Just sort of like, let it wash right through you. Like the particles being sent from the sun. And, um, 
So as I was bottom turning into this wave, I didn't even finish my bottom turn before I saw the lip throw. And it had there was so much time for it to come over. I just remember pulling up high to get speed and start knifing down the wave on my tow board. And just seeing the inhale of the wave, it just looked like the back of a dragon, just scaly and gnarly on the lip. And I just thought, man, if I fall right now, it's going to be one of the worst beatings I probably will ever have. And I had so much speed because I trusted my board. Board has been, you know, we've been working on that for like five years, six years with my shaper, Keith DeVoe. And I came shooting out. I came down over the ledge. And what I remembered realizing was, that ledge I was going over was where I normally get barreled paddle and surfing or even toe and surfing. So this wave was big enough. It broke way farther out and I was riding a different part of the wave. I guess they call it the second bell at Jaws. There's like three bells. First bell is where you paddle. Second bell is like when it starts getting big and you're towing. And then third bell is like apocalyptically big. This one was like in between second and third bell, I think. And uh, I just remember coming out having so much speed and I just saw a big open face. I'm like, I got to just try to hit the lip here. And I just ended up doing a big carve. And remember, the carve felt so good because, you know, I just survived not getting eaten alive. And then I, I thought, what else can I do? I still have so much time on this wave. So I went for an alley-oop. And then mid-alley-oop, I was like, oh, I'll try, you know, a double alley-oop. And the wind ended up catching my nose. And I got sent off access and hit the water going pretty fast and got the wind knocked out of me. But I was already in the channel at that point. And it was probably my single best ride of the year, um, only because of the level of criticalness and then also what it took to get there. It just felt like I was be- being rewarded by the gods, a god. Wow, that was uh, that was enthralling. Thank you so much for describing that. It, it's horrifying, but it, it was it was so interesting to hear you break it down in that much detail. And I love the the fact that you've brought back the strapped backflips, alley-oops and big airs at the end of waves. Can you talk me through your thinking there? Because no one else does it. And I'm a little, I was a little bit like, why? Like and since Rush Randall and, and these guys in the 90s, no one's really bringing that, that side to it. And I don't know if it's seen as novelty and people don't want to do that or if it, it just, it's, it hasn't really fit in with the dogma of big wave surfing. But can you talk to, talk to me about um, that type of surfing from your point of view? Yeah, so that type of surfing for me, you know, I was, of course, inspired by the strap crew, Rush Randall in particular. I mean, back in the day, they would do these massive kickouts and do these huge flips and stuff and, you know, 360s, alley-oops, whatever. And then, you know, as soon as they were done spending time off at Jaws, everyone else just stopped doing it. And I think the focus it was around the years where everyone started focusing on Chopu and trying to get just barreled. And then in big way surfing with paddling, it was always just about the barrel. Because I think the criticalness of riding a barrel on big waves is so intense. And for me, I've always been just a massive fan of snowboarding, massive fan of the strap crew. And I was just like, you know, there's no reason why we can't be doing aerials on big waves. And it's different than small wave surfing in terms of getting areas because those small waves are actually coming up the face of these big ones and you're hitting six foot chop. And I always thought instead of trying to survive going over the chop, just do a backflip or a 360 <laughs> off of them. I mean, you, you have in big wave surfing, you have a lot more time than you think. Um, the tendency is to want to run like hell, but you need to figure out how to slow yourself down and realize that you have all the time in the world and partly why i love surfing tiny tiny waves now is because in small waves you have zero time to get a maneuvering you have to you can't even think about it you just got to be like 
pure reaction. Whereas in big wave surfing, you have like, you know, seconds, tens of seconds sometimes to really do something a certain way. And, uh, and so if I can get my reactions quicker in small waves than I go in big waves, it's just, I feel like I can slow the time down and really analyze what I want to do. Like, okay, here's a chop. I'll just, as I wait for the wave to set up, I'll do a backside free. Okay. I land. Okay. The wave still isn't set up. I'll bottom turn do a front side free. Okay. Now the wave's set up. I'm dropping in. Now I'm going to go in the barrel. And then when I come out, I'll have all this speed. If there's an end section, I'm going to be able to nail it. And I mean, what I'm doing is scratching the surface of what is truly possible. So, I mean, I'm just looking forward to the next five years or so to see how far I'm able to take it. Cause I know like, the potential is just absurd. I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing double, even triple rotations off these big waves. It's just right now I'm trying to figure out how to do it because the timing is so weird. You, you have so much time from the bottom to the top that you almost got to start bottom turning and hitting, going for it earlier in order to get there on time. Because by time, sometimes it looks perfect. By the time you get there bottom turning, you're already too late and it's pitching over and you got to like redirect. So the, it's right now it's just learning and, and trying to get enough experience. And the other difficulty is like you might only get a couple years or a couple days in the year to actually do it. And surely it has to be on the end section. You can't really hit the lip mid uh, midway. You would lose speed, right? Or, or is that? Am I thinking too small there? Um, I I mean I think you the con the thing is is. I mean, it takes experimentation. You got to just at one point go for it. But then the consequences of getting just totally destroyed for trying an error is so high that, you know, there is really no reason why you can't hit the outside peak section. Like, you just have to have a first enough speed and you have to figure out the approach. It's not going to be your traditional deep bottom turn to pop off the lip, you know, John John Florence error. It's going to be like, probably cutting across the face a little more. But again, I'm still experimenting and trying to figure that out. It, it really all comes down to speed. And fortunately, my boards are the fastest boards. How do you know that? How do you I, know? How do you, how have you just decided that? How do you know? I mean, I just have tried so many different boards, you know, we're constantly swapping in the water and, you know, my boards are built from windsurfing concepts. So I know for a fact that we have stuff on in, that are designed within my boards and fins that, you know, surf boards don't necessarily have, but windsurf boards have. And windsurf boards are always at high speed. So, um, I mean, I think, uh, you know, if I'm able to make certain sections and others aren't, it's probably a clear indication that I have the fastest boards. <laughs> yeah, that's the results uh, speak for themselves, I guess. And you touched on it previously. I'd love to know, what happens in regards to the politics when you have a well-publicized swell, there's lots of people there, there is uh, potential, uh, you know, disagreements around who's taking their fair share or how people are acting in the water. What happens post-surf? Are there massive text threads or, or how does this, these, this type of thinking, or sorry, this, these type of events get um, sorted out? Well, it's funny, you know, it's like really it's because a lot of times when the media um, pushes a swell, like it's the biggest swell since then, then you get a lot of people get really like anxious, I think. And, you know, with big wave awards, of course, and, you know, sponsorships on the line, um, you know, people are just hungry and they're almost 
they're not doing it, I think, just to, to like, be mean in terms of, like, taking more than they should. It's more that they kind of get caught up in the moment. You know, they're in survival mode. It's intense. They see a big wave, and they just want to be on it. And that happened with Jaws this year, where there was a lot of people out there that normally are very cordial and take turns. And it was actually the top-level big wave surfers that were out there were the most well-behaved. And it's because they would see another, you know, deserving big wave surfer going for a wave, knowing that they had waited an hour for it and they'd let them go. Now there was an issue where, you know, with cone surfing, I can understand what the guys were going through in the early 2000s, which is you waited your turn for an hour and now you're going to wave. And then you have somebody just come swooping around you and think that it's their wave. And they had just caught in one 10 minutes earlier. And you're just like, it's like, how do you think this is going to play out? And would you do that same thing at Pike to somebody that, you know, has earned their spot in the lineup? Probably not. But the power of the jet ski um, is uh, is a crazy thing. And I feel like, um, you know, if everyone just takes their turn, everyone's probably going to get more waves. Because I can tell you for sure that there were waves that went completely unridden because people were just battling for it. And it was like completely unnecessary. Um, and you know, paddle surfing kind of gets rid of that a little bit. Granted, there are days where it's really crowded, um, say on a really big day, you know, at any one of the main big breaks, but you know, again, it comes down to the swell as well. Isn't maybe producing as much big waves as people see on video. Like there was every half hour a set at jaws and in between was smaller waves. And, you know, on a day that big, you're just going to wait for the bigger waves. So, People get antsy, and all of a sudden, an hour and a half goes by, and you're caught in a wave, and people just want to ride wave. Is there? Is there? I know the big wave community is a tight knit community, though, and, and you guys communicate. Is how do these things get sorted out? Is it via text message, or is it is it discussions post surf, or how do these things get spoken about so that they don't happen again, or that people so people can end up on a common ground? Well, I would say between myself and you know my close friends that I surf big waves with it's very upfront in the moment it's just like like what are you doing um <laughs> like take your turn and I can tell you this last swell there was more of that than I had ever seen because people were just like greedy and the weirdest part is the guys that deserve it the most that I was seeing were the least greedy because they knew they were going to get their waves and it was the guys that probably didn't belong out there that were the most greedy. And it was very like, I mean, I mean, I don't, the whole text thread thing, it really doesn't lead to anywhere. There's usually some drama, but I mean, it's like at that point it's already over and it's like, well, what are you going to do? Like it's, it doesn't come down to like, it really comes down to how you act in the moment and not how you can make it up afterwards. I mean, if you're trying to make it up afterwards, you probably should rethink your approach in big wave riding. So I mean, if you're doing something wrong, one of the best big wave surfers in the world will tell you straight, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it's not even like yelling, I'm threatening to fight you. It's literally like an honest question, like, what are you doing? Yeah. And you see that tunes them up because they realize that they're clearly in the wrong. I mean, if you have some of these big wave surfers who are the most humble and soft-spoken people telling you, like, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> um, then you probably should go sit under a tree and think about it. Um, and I mean, it's not really the big wave surfers you got to be worried about. Like somewhere at Jaws, I mean, there's some big mokes that drive jet skis that does safety for us. And 
before we even see say anything or see something, you know, they're usually like, you know, keeping order in the lineup. Um, oh, they're the but, enforcers, the jet ski, the guys on the jet skis. Yeah, and the, I mean, yeah, because they're seeing everything that's happening, and you know, no one's getting in fights, but it's just like you know, maintaining order is important, and and it's not, it's not like who's a local and who isn't. It's like literally comes down to just take your turn. It's not that hard to of a concept to grasp, but sometimes it is for certain individuals. Yeah, and. What do you think it takes to be considered the best big wave surfer in the world? Uh, you know, that's, I think, a good question for, like, it just depends on who you like, whose style you like in big wave surfing. I mean, to me, my favorite big wave surfers are the ones that are consistently riding big waves and, you know, treating, like, obviously treating the big waves with the utmost respect, but making it look like they're surfing a small wave. Um, just the way they manage the lineup paddling and then, of course, when they're on the waves, they're, they're comfort level. And then to me, the ultimate big wave surfer is somebody who can paddle the biggest waves and then quickly switch to a tow board or, you know, some other craft and do the most high performance surfing they possibly can. Like, and that's where I've sort of kind of the track I've um, been chasing or kind of that road I've been chasing is like, what kind of big wave surfer do I want to be? Well, this is my vision of the best big wave surfer that I could become. Your middle name is Waterman. And yeah, you've lived up to that name in every sense of the word. But that's a like that's a strange name if if you if you're not Kyle Lenny. So it made me think like, did you have parents that were Tiger Woods style parents that just decided that mm-hmm. this was your destiny? Like how did you end up with the name Waterman? It just seems it just seems uncanny. Well, the interesting thing about that name is it's actually just a fam. It was it's a family name. It was my great grandmother's maiden name. What? And yeah, and so basically, what happened was, you know, of course, the name didn't continue because of you know it was my great grandmother's and not my great grandfather's. And so my uncles uh, have the middle name Waterman, and my dad, who's you know, my mom and dad, but both of them surfers windsurfers kiters everything that i do they do um you know i was their first child and they always like gosh it's such a cool last or such a cool middle name our first kid we're gonna give them that middle name i always thought man it would have been cool if that ended up being my last name it would have been just kai waterman <laughs> but um <laughs> you know what it's, it's just stoked stoked that what i love to do is also just my name all righty and what are you gonna do now um, right now I'm going to hop in my hyperbaric chamber and recover. You actually have one of those things at your house? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. What? Whatever it takes to, to recover between big waves. Yeah. Far out. And that's just like a, for anyone who doesn't know, that's just a freezing cold, um, thing that you get inside. No, it's a, um, it's basically a, uh, it's, I have like this, it's a tube you lay inside and it gets pressurized and then you know it basically there's more oxygen in there and your base essentially it just you it cuts your recovery down in half and uh it's it's pretty awesome um it's a great tool to just like try to recover especially you know if i'm surfing giant waves and you know i have two stack days i'll surf i'll be in the water for 12 hours the first day i can come home and i can literally lay in it for a couple hours and then, you know, go to bed and then wake up in the morning and just be a lot more rested. How does it work? 
Um, does it help you digest Taco Bell? Uh, certainly. It for <laughs> sure does. You know, everything helps. No, by that point, everything... No, I have a, I'll, I'll admit, I do have a furnace of a stomach. Like, anything you put in there, it just turns to flames and uh, energy. So, um, I think uh, this definitely... This kind of helps the muscle recovery, maybe less the digestive, but that's why I just, you know, am chugging water all the time. I'm sorry, how, how does it work? I'll let you go. I promise I'll let you go, but this is just too fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know what it was. Uh, no, no. So the chamber, I mean, uh, you go super deep into the science, but it just allows your muscles to recover quicker. Um, and it's based on being exposed to a pressurized environment with uh, extra oxygen more than the natural air outside. Hmm. And, um, I mean, it's what top athletes in many other sports do. So if they're doing it, then it must work. So I figure I have to do it. Yeah. I love it. All right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pest you with any more questions. Thanks so much, Kai. Have a good day. And, um, hopefully I will buzz you again one day. 100%. Call me anytime. 100%. Call me anytime. Call me anytime. Call me anytime. Call me anytime. That was Kai Lenny, and you are you, and you're great. You're really great. So believe in yourself. If you can dream it, you can do it. Reach for the stars and that. Thanks for listening. My email is in the episode description if you want to get in touch. And hopefully we'll see you next week where I'll be joined by Dane Reynolds and somebody else. <laughs>